Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles today to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy three. Paul is writing to Timothy in this letter. Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, and he has been called to be a pastor there. And Paul is giving him guidance on how to lead the church. First of all, then, I urge, I'm sorry, that's chapter 2. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Just pause for a moment. The word overseer here uh, is interchangeable with the word elder. You see that in Titus chapter 1 where Paul gives Titus the instructions for overseers and elders. The word overseer is in Greek episkopos. We get the word episcopal or episcopalian from it. And the word for elder is presbyteros, which is where we get the word presbyterian or presbyter from. So an overseer or Episcopos is the same as a presbyteros or presbyter or an elder. Now on to deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them be also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, later times, some will depart from the faith. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, I want to give us this morning uh, a vision for the church. What is, what is the church here for? And what part do officers play in the church? Indeed, what part do we all play in the church? Now, as I said before, Paul has written this letter to Timothy 
to give him instructions on how he should lead the church in Ephesus. And these, this is God's word that we want to take to heart in our own context, in our own church, to be the kind of church that God has called us to be. We've got some good things happening here at First Presbyterian Church. Um, we've been working on the building a lot and the grounds and trying to poise ourselves for more ministry. We're looking to ex expand our outreach, and we'll be having a meeting this afternoon for folks who are interested in reaching out into the community. We're going to be doing more work with some of the uh, mercy ministries that surround us here on the Gulf Coast and being able to reach out with the gospel of Christ uh, more efficiently. So these things are happening, and it's very exciting to see what the Lord is doing. And this is a great day in that process where more leadership is coming into the church to help carry the burden uh, of leading the church. And so we're very excited. Well, in this letter that, that Paul is writing to Timothy and instructing him on how the church should be run, he sets the scene in chapter 1 by warning Timothy of false teaching. False teaching comes into the church and much of the problems that you see uh, within the church and, and the criticisms of the church is, of today is, is well-founded because uh, there's been a lot of false teaching that has been adopted in the church. And indeed, some churches have ceased to even be able to call themselves rightfully a church. So we have to be on the lookout for false teaching. And how shall Timothy combat false teaching in this commission that he has received to serve the church there in Ephesus? And what should the church do to combat this? Well, chapter 2 says that the first thing you should do is pray. And chapter 2 is all about praying for others. And then here in chapter 3 that we've read, it stresses the need for faithful leadership, laying out the qualifications for elders and deacons in the church. And then when we come to verse 14 of chapter 3, Paul clearly states why he's writing this letter. And it's, and it's uh, a great statement that he makes there in verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church, the family of God, the household of God, is the pillar and buttress of truth. And this speaks to the very purpose of the church. The church is to hold forth the truth, to be a pillar upon which the church rests, to hold it forth to the world. And a buttress of the truth, a fortress is, a, is, a, is another word for buttress, a, a defense against this false teaching that Paul's been warning Timothy about. So the church is to believe and to hold forth the word of God, the good news about Jesus Christ, to hold it forth to the world and to protect it, to be faithful to it, and to defend it against false teaching. And then he tells us in verse 16 exactly the truth that we are to believe and hold forth to the world. Many people think, uh, many commentators think that this is an old hymn 
or a confession that they had in those days. Verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And it says here the church holds forth the mystery of godliness. Now the word mystery, of course to us, if we say something is a mystery, we think, well, that's something that we don't know or or that we're trying to figure out. It's a mystery. But that's not how the Bible uses the word. The Bible, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it refers to something that once was hidden but now has been revealed. Uh, It's kind of like we've already read the mystery book. We've read the Agatha Christie uh, novel, uh, the mystery that she's written there. We know the outcome of it already. And it's, the tr- it's true with the gospel. That's what he's talking about here. It was hidden, this mystery of godliness. How can someone be godly or pious or devoted to God in relationship with God? Um, that was a mystery for sinful people until Christ appeared. It was revealed when Christ appeared. It was the mystery. It was hidden, and then when Christ appeared, it was revealed. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. It's all that Jesus has done in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension in order to save sinners such as we are. And it's called that mystery of godliness because it speaks to how we can be right with God. How can sinners be considered godly before a holy God? How can we be devoted to him in an acceptable manner? How can we be truly pious to love the Lord with our lives? How can we move beyond simply using Christian as a title and actually have a relationship with God, communion with God? Jesus is the answer to that. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He brings us together. He has done everything to secure godliness for the believer. He is the mystery of godliness revealed supernaturally to his people. And Paul tells us these six things about Jesus Christ which make up the mystery of godliness. And these are the truths that we as a church are called to uphold and to proclaim to the world. In fact, that's the purpose of the church. There's a great old book called The Church of Christ. It's a two-volume tome all about the church written by a fellow named Bannerman, a Scottish man. And he writes this, There can be no doubt that the Scripture represents the one great object of the establishment of a church in the world to be the glory of God in the salvation of sinners by means of the publication of the gospel. For this end, the church was instituted at first. For this end, it continues to exist from one generation to another, and it is only insofar as it accomplishes this one grand object of its existence that it serves the proper and primary purpose of a church at all. Judging then by this first test, we are warranted in saying that to hold and to preach the true faith or doctrine of Christ is the only sure and infallible note or mark of a Christian church because this is the one thing 
for the sake of which a church of Christ has been instituted on earth, to hold and to preach the true faith or doctrine of Christ. That's what we are to be all about. That's why the church exists. And if we're doing anything besides that, we're not fulfilling our purpose. We've gone off the rails. And if we're not preaching Christ and preaching something else, we've gone off the rails. It's all about Jesus, and that's what he says in these six statements. He was manifested in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man, and that was the beginning of this mystery of godliness. God entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't leave us helpless in our sin. God himself came to us, and he dwelt among us. He's not waiting for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. He comes to do all the work to save us. He died for our sins on the cross. He rose again for our justification. You can't earn your salvation by being a good person because you're not one. God had to come be good for you. And that's what he did in the flesh. And then it says he was vindicated by the Spirit. This is just another way of saying that he rose from the dead. He was reproached as a sinner uh, when they hung him on the cross. They accused him of things. He was put to death as, uh, as a criminal, but he was raised again by the power of the Holy Spirit and was justified from all the defamations which were thrown at him. Death could not hold him because he was sinless. The reason we die, the reason that, that death exists in the world is because sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and has been passed down to generation to generation. But Jesus was born sinless, being the Son of God, and death had no claim on him. And that's why he rose from the dead. He was perfect. And the offering he made for sin was acceptable to the Father. And therefore Jesus had to be raised from the dead. He rose for our justification, Romans 4, 25. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, 1 Peter 3, 18. And he was seen by angels. They attended his incarnation when the angels sang to the shepherds. His, ascent, his, his, uh, his agony, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, because they were interested in what Jesus was doing in the world. Peter, in his first epistle, says that, uh, that all of this about Jesus, his sufferings and his glories, these are things into which angels long to look. And that's a great honor. Jesus is the Lord of angels. And he was proclaimed among the nations. He's preached to the Gentiles, to every tongue and tribe and nation. Jesus has been proclaimed because he is the only Savior of sinners. And he's believed on in the world. It's amazing that a world full of sin and wickedness would believe in the Son of God. And it's happening and he's promised that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be in the kingdom with him. He's believed on in the world. He's building his church. And he finally is taken up in glory. He ascended into heaven. And we've been talking about this a lot from the book of Hebrews that we've been studying. That he is there, our great high priest, 
at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, representing us as a man there, paid the penalty for our sins, and he has done all the work. And when Satan throws accusations at you, and you're a, if you're a believer, Jesus says, no, no, no. His sin's paid for. Her sin's been paid for. And he's praying for us. He loves us and cares for us there at the right hand of the Father. All of this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we as a church are to proclaim. It's our purpose to make this message known, to believe it ourselves and to live out the implications of it in every facet of our lives. And everybody has a part to play in that. God has given us all gifts Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He's talking about when Christ ascended, he gave gifts to men. Um, and he means human humanity, the church. And it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And you're the saints if you're a believer. We're all to be involved in the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, it's all about Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, again to be protected from false teaching. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what the church is all about. It's all about Jesus and being united to him by faith, and receiving all that he has secured in his life, death, and resurrection for our salvation. And when we are united to him by faith, well, we have his godliness credited to us by faith. And it fuels our service to him. And to that end, to the proclamation and defense of this gospel, we have officers in the church. We have elders and deacons. Now, in the case of elders, we can go all the way back to the days of Moses, where Moses was bearing the load of, of being the leader of the children of Israel, and his father-in-law came with some good advice and said, you need to get other men to come alongside and bear, this, bear the weight of this work that you have to hear the cases and to judge and to be leaders in the church. And so those were appointed. And that has been a pattern set. And then, it's, it's not until the New Testament that we have deacons. Elders are the shepherds of the church. We're the under-shepherds for the great shepherd. We are to care for the church of Christ, the souls of the, the church, to make sure that people are trusting in Christ and walking with Christ and taking the gospel of Christ and applying it to their lives, praying for them, serving in that respect. And then deacons 
in Acts 6, uh, where it says, In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we have a clear division of labor here. Elders are to be promoting prayer in the ministry of the word and shepherding the flock of God that's been placed under his care. And deacons are to tend to the physical needs of the people of God and uh, as well uh, the facilities that we need and, the, and our property that we have at a local church to make sure it's in good order so that the people of God can come and worship and, and minister. So those are the warrants for these offices from Scripture. And we see the duties here laid out for us here in chapter 3. In the Gospel Transformation Study Bible, it says this about these qualifications for officers. Paul's directives to the officers include the reputation, marriage, self-mastery, ministry, temperance, temperament, money, family, maturity, and reputation. These graces cultivate a godly symmetry in the lives of officers and the church as a whole. Consequently, the gospel is adorned beautifully before a lost world. So we as elders and deacons in the church are called to this standard of godliness that we need to represent Christ and his church well before a lost world. He goes on to say there, the spiritual trajectories of leaders' lives are of paramount importance in regard to the furtherance of the gospel. Indeed, when it comes to the spread of the gospel, godliness is a matter of life and death. And such godliness is always the result of the gospel of grace, which is the only power that can transform the human heart. So officers and, and prospective officers, it is of utmost importance that we hold these standards. And these are standards that we should all aspire to. To, be, to live lives of godliness all the time so that we might clearly show Jesus to the world by proclaiming the truths of the gospel, by showing the love of Christ to his people and to those who are in need. It goes on. So the call to godly conduct is not a challenge to pursue a self-generated godliness. Rather, it is a call to live out the dizzying realities of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ is the burning essence of godliness. It's radiating nuclear core, so to speak. In his incarnation, death, and resurrection, the mystery of godliness was displayed before the universe. And by virtue of Christ's saving grace, all those who believe in him have been united to him so that they share in his godliness. His godly record... Become, becomes ours by grace. But in the thankful response of regenerated hearts, we also begin to live out personally the godliness Christ embodied. Paul's call to godliness is thus both gospel-generated and gospel-sustained. If you have Christ, 
You possess and are possessed by the very mystery of godliness, and you can live out this mystery. We need to show the world Jesus Christ. That's the answer to the problems of the world. And if we as a church are not doing that, then we're failing in our mission. So we as officers, you as church members, as Christians, may we promote Christ, show Jesus by our actions and by our words to a lost and dying world. It's the great commission that we've been given to make disciples of all nations. And may God grant us grace to do so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the challenge that it is to us. We thank you for the gospel, that it is through Christ and his grace that we are saved and through his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And we thank you for all the gifts that you have given us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us all to embrace the gospel ever deeper into our lives. And if anyone is here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. And may they cry out to you for forgiveness and mercy. And we pray, Lord, that they would know true salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.